From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Tunisia, since 2010-2011 revolution, has been seen as the most successful democracy in the Arab world. But at the moment, the country is tithering at the edge of what some people have called a constitutional coup. Here is what happened on July 25th, after a day of protest over the government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economy, Tunisian President Reid Said invoked an emergency act, dismissed the prime minister, suspended the parliament for at least a month and took charge of the executive powers. One of the major contributing factors to this crisis has been the pandemic. According to Reuters, so far around 940,000 people have been fully vaccinated among a population of 11.6 million. Tunisia has reported around 18,000 deaths and more than half a million infections. At some point last month, it had the worst infection rate in Africa. Khalil Bendib spoke about the pandemic and the political and economic crisis in Tunisia with Tunisian researcher Mohamed Hammami. Mohamed, last time you and I spoke about six months ago, Tunisia seemed to be doing relatively well compared to its neighbors. How did Tunisia go from model student to having the worst mortality rate in Africa? Well, I think it had to go through a long trajectory, actually, and things didn't start yesterday. We need to go back to see what didn't change since Ben Ali uh, left the country and since Tunisia started building their democracy. One of the main things that we would notice is the economic orientations adopted by the ruling elite. Instead of breaking with the neoliberal approach of Ben Ali that led to the failure of his government, they instead decided to keep going with the same partners, the usual IMF, World Bank, the European Union, focusing on budget control, austerity, and this affected directly the healthcare system. So we have right now a significant number of unemployed doctors and paramedics, but at the same time, the government is refusing to recruit them because of the austerity policies the IMF is asking us to implement. Same thing regarding the privatization of of healthcare in general. Starting from the late period of Ben Ali regime, we saw a progressive move toward the encouragement of creation of private hospitals and, and medical tourism instead of focusing on the provision of basic public services for the low-income Tunisians. And when COVID hit, it was very hard for the government to react. We didn't have enough beds. We didn't have enough ICUs. And even in terms of oxygen, we couldn't even increase the supply of oxygen on time to respond to the needs. So far, the production of oxygen is, is monopolized by two foreign companies who are still refusing to expand their production capacity. So I think this is the main reason why we failed to face the COVID situation and why things didn't change. These factors led to the rise of popular discontent. 
the large majority of Tunisians were affected by these economic policies, by the depreciation of the national currency, the dinar, that affect directly their living standards. And instead of going to these complicated factors and explaining them, instead of going back to these complicated factors and focusing on the economic reasons of the deterioration of the overall situation in Tunisia, they go to what they have in front of them. They have a political elite that failed to respond to their needs and to the uh, demands of the revolution. And who is the main political party in the country? The only political party that succeeded, that was able to survive from 2011 until now, it's Nahda's party. And that's where the narrative is going right now. Nahda, which is the Islamist party that has the largest voting bloc in the parliament in Tunisia. How have the COVID-related policies like lockdowns and other measures affected the economy? And is this an exacerbating factor for popular discontent in Tunisia? It's difficult to deny that the fact that the anti-COVID public health measure had an impact on certain groups within the Tunisian population, like workers in the hospitality sector. Tunisia is heavily dependent on tourism when it comes to resources in terms of foreign currency. That's the first sector that was hit, like most of tourism sectors across the world. Same thing with restaurants and cafes. In order to avoid the crowding after work meetings in neighborhoods, the government decided to prevent cafes from using their seats and tables after 4 p.m. and that had an impact. And there is a curfew that usually it starts at 8 p.m., but now they just changed it yesterday. It starts from 10 p.m. We can add to that the reluctance of the private sector, of the Tunisian private sector, to adjust to the COVID situation. Many Tunisians still have to go to their workplace instead of working remotely, and they would use public transportation, very crowded public transportation. They are directly exposed, and once they get sick, when they, once they get the virus, the public health sector is not able to provide them with good services. And added to that, the high cost of testing, the fact that buying every day a new mask for every single member of the family of Uganda and Tunisia, a mask costs one dinar at least, or two, depending on, on the type of masks. And you count that if you multiply. For a low-income family, it adds up and it is very difficult for a Tunisian family to actually follow the recommendations of the government. How was the government in terms of directing and implementing or at least uh, recommending good practices like social distancing and other things like you know, other countries have done? The problem is that the government kept saying that we need to wear masks and to self-distance, but in practice, it's very difficult to do that when you have to get the metro or the, the car to go to work every day. That's extremely difficult to avoid. So even if they want, they can't. So Tunisians seem to blame the government for mishandling the pandemic. And in addition to all the, their other grievances, 
following the decision to fire part of his government or all the major ministries, the president restored and expanded the COVID curfew to start as early as 7 p.m. every night. In retrospect, what have some of the major government's missteps, in your opinion, have been over the course of this pandemic, both in terms of saving lives and trying to preserve what was left of the economy? I think one of the mistakes that the government did is that at some moment when we were in relatively good situation with a very low number of cases, the government decided to open the borders for tourists to just give their priority to the tourism sector and they sacrificed most indigenous lives. That's how many people see it. And added to that, they didn't try to provide any significant social aid, monetary transfers to people who were directly affected. There was one program of didn't last too long, 200 dinars for low-income families and 100 dinars in Tunisia, it's dinars, it's something like 60, between 60 and 70 dollars a month. That's nothing. And not even cover food expenses or the housing expenses of the average Indian family. I don't think that what led us to the current situation is COVID. Let's put it this way. Maybe it had some marginal effect in the sense that it made things worse. That's not why the president decided to do what he did. Right, right. It's just that some people also have been grumbling about that. One major problem, at least one problem, was, has been also the slow rate of vaccination. I believe that only 7% of the population has been vaccinated as of a few days ago. Is this delay due to lack of access to vaccines? And if so, has the international COVAX program proven inadequate to the needs? Yes, the vaccination rate was slower than a few other countries that decided early to work with China, like Morocco, for example, or Egypt. We, in Tunisia, the government decided to wait for the supply of Western vaccines, and it took some time. So the vaccination campaign started late, and it is still going slow, mostly because of initially two reasons. The supply didn't go as fast as we needed, especially the ones that have existed. The president had to engage in what some people call vaccine diplomacy to get donations from countries that do not even produce vaccines, like Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Turkey. The Emirates started producing vaccines, so they sent us also a large amount, France and other countries. But I think right now, our problem is no longer with the supply. Our problem is with understaffing the lack of organization of the public health sector. We are not using efficiently the resources that we have, and it's very disorganized. And I think these are the main reasons why the vaccine campaign is not going that fast. Added to the failure of government to supply vaccine on time, we should also keep in mind that vaccine hesitancy or anti-vax positions in Tunisia are very popular, very high, meaning Tunisians are reluctant to get vaccinated. And comparatively with other countries, the rate is very high. There was a study by several researchers from South Korea, the US, and I think Germany, I'm not sure other countries, were surveyed. 50 countries to see the extent to which people are 
willing to believe fake news uh, related to vaccine and COVID. And Tunisia was one of the countries where the rate of uh, believability of fake news regarding COVID is high. Uh, there were other studies also that confirmed the existence of a high rate of a vaccine hesitancy, even among elites and medical staff. So that's also a very important factor. Just out of curiosity, how it compares with the same thing in Algeria and neighboring countries? Actually, because... Algeria, the four, four countries that I mentioned that have the highest rate of fake news believability are Algeria, and Tunisia, and Saudi Arabia. Because I know it's very high in Algeria as well. There's this very high propensity to believe rumors, to be skeptical of official sources and official information. Yes, uh, for example, we have medication against vaccine or that the vaccine is being spread by pharmaceutical company to make profit. Rumors like that. Following President Qais Sayed's uh, move to freeze the parliament for 30 days, as well as public assemblies of more than three people, opponents speak of an outright coup d'etat. But the president has evoked Article 80 of the 2014 Constitution, which grants the president extraordinary powers in cases of, quote, imminent threat to the country. Many Tunisians who are despairing of the government's inability to affect meaningful change seem pleased to see the president take charge. And they seem to support him in his attempt to, to change things. Tell us more about that. What is your sense of how supportive the population is of Qais Saeed's latest moves? I think it's important for us to keep in mind that there is a discussion on whether or not the president did actually respect the Article A and respect the Constitution. There are more than one constitutional law experts, Tunisian ones, who said that he didn't. And one of the reasons that normally he would need the approval of the Constitutional Court to do that. We don't have a Constitutional Court right now. And according to this article, it doesn't have the right to dissolve the parliament or the cabinet. But he decided to freeze them and to remove the prime minister. To freeze the parliament, that's the word that he used also to suspend in, in the decree that he sent, he published. Normally, he shouldn't have the right to do that. But independently from the legality, and I don't think that most Tunisians have read the Constitution or even want to engage in discussions on the Article 80, regarding that, uh, independently from that, we saw a, a very high level of support, something around 80% according to some polls. Even in my entourage, there is a significant level of, of support of what he did. The expectations are high. Many people think want him to dismantle the system, want him to clean, that's the word that they use, to clean up the country from corruption. They want him to make decisions that would approve the living conditions of Tunisians and maybe even to go further and change the form of government towards either uh, form of government where there is more concentration of power in the hands of the president, presidential regime instead of parliamentary regime, or think more decentralized, like the project he've been advocating for for some time, a kind of democracy based on local councils and being more complicated and don't think he's going to go in that direction. Or others are totally fine with the return to the authoritarian type of control that we had before 2011. So I, I personally don't think that 
crisis side, he would be able to respond to these demands, to these very ambitious and high and radical demands. And we already, we already started seeing some signs that confirms that. Yesterday, he, for example, invited the general manager of one of Tunisia's most powerful and politically connected banks, talking to him about how the banking sector can be patriotic and if they just reduce the interest rates. And so by doing that, he showed willingness to work with companies owned by members of even the Ben Ali regime in this case, who were protected by Nahda and the, the post-2011 elite. That's number one. So he's limited in his ambition to clean up the corruption. He's limited. Uh, I don't, I don't said... think he's limited. I think he's unwilling to go very far. Okay. If starting from the first few days, he invites the general manager of one of the most central nodes in the oligarchical networks in the country and talk about working together and asking for collaboration, I don't think he will engage in some sort of, for example, confiscation of the assets of corrupt people who benefited from the regime or some, some time the way it happened just, just after the revolution. I don't think he will go in that direction. So it's not just about a capacity to do it. It's about willingness to do it. I would like to add to that. He said that he is not an expert in the economy and he doesn't understand economic problems, issues. I don't think he would be able to take measures that will significantly improve the living conditions of Tunisians. He may engage in some, he may make some populist decisions during the first days to calm down the tensions and send positive signs. But from what he said about his own understanding of the economy, it's difficult to expect anything significant from him during the next few days, months, or who knows. So on the one hand, he campaigned during his presidential run on cleaning up the mess, cleaning up the corruption. And he also seems to be right now more interested in perhaps turning the current system into a more presidential and less parliamentary system. On the other hand, you're saying he's very limited in what he is willing or able to do. So what do you make of this that he's done, that he's trying to concentrate power in his own hands, when at the same time you see how he's not going to be able to, to affect much change? I think the main problem of Kaisa Saeed is communication. He doesn't communicate well his intentions and doesn't respond to needs for, qualif- for clarification. Since the night of July 25th, when he decided to concentrate the executive and legislative power, many organizations asked him to make his intentions clear to, for example, present a roadmap or a timeline for what he wants to do. And so far, he didn't respond to these calls. He didn't even react to them. And we don't even know if he wants to transform the Tunisian's political regime into a presidential regime or an authoritarian regime or implement his kind of unconventional, I would even say weird, a system based on local councils 
We don't know his intentions. He's opaque. And I think it allows many people to let their imagination tell them what he wants. So it's really difficult to answer to this question because he's been inconsistent regarding several things. And right now, he can go in literally any direction. What we know is that he's an outsider to the established elites, which means that he does not have necessarily the full cooperation of people who have effective power and control over key component of what people call the system. We don't even know what is happening inside the military institution or the security apparatus. It's not clear. And that's also why the level of uncertainty about what will happen is extremely high. People outside of Tunisia have tried to apply the label of populist to him because he's so popular, number one. And number two, he is an outsider and he talks like an outsider and he talks about shaking up the existing system. Saeed refused, for example, to move into the presidential palace and lived at home for a long time, insisting he was a simple citizen with no interest in pomp. Coronavirus and his security team dictated that he moved there late last year, but he still drops into his old neighborhood cafe and chats with customers. Such gestures seem to appeal to Tunisians. Would you call him a populist? I mean, knowing as much, you know, you've seen him at work now for two years in power, other than outsider, how would you classify him? He seems to be a very original, unique political animal. That's a good question. And I think in a previous podcast with you, I was reluctant to start calling him a populist. This was, I think, during the campaign or just after his election. We didn't really see him in power. But right now, I think I'm more comfortable with the use of the word populist because he addresses the masses as if he is fair ally. But at the same time, we see that he is also interested in building ties with the business elites, like I mentioned, in the way he promised influential business people in public that he wouldn't harm their interests. When he talked about collaboration with the uh, representative of the banking lobby or with the representative of Utica, which is the syndicate of business owners in Tunisia. It's a strong, also powerful organization with, with thousands of members that represent the, the bourgeoisie or the business elites of Tunisia. So even if we want to go back to his background, we can see that he wanted to do one of Tunisia's most prestigious school, the Sadiqi College, Madrasa Sadiqiyya in Arabic, where a significant number of ministers graduated. If we look at his family, we can find that his mother belongs to the kind of aristocratic Turkish Ottoman milieu of the capital, Tunis, but he didn't get that level of prestige because it's usually transferred to the father and not the mother. So he has some connections with the elites and he is willing to cooperate with them. And he is aware that it's difficult to rule without support or at least cooperation of these elites. So the problem that he also presents himself as an anti-elite, anti-political party figure, that uh, he is uh, one of the, there is an expression in Arabic, 
with the shab, which is the, the, the son shab. of the people, that he, he belongs to the people, to the masses, and not to the corrupt elite that we're seeing, we've been seeing since 2011, looting the state resources according to his narrative. And so that's the problem. And even when it comes to analyses, they are, he presents, they are, they tend to be a bit simple. And, and as I said, he was very explicit yesterday. He said that he doesn't understand economic issues and stuff. So for him, it's just all about corruption and the type of the regime. Even when it comes to the selection of his advisors, he was not very good at selecting advisor who can help him. So there is a clear contradiction about what he, he claims to be and what he is in reality, or what he wants to do and what he is doing. And that's why I think I'm comfortable with using the word populist to describe Isaid. It's interesting, this Ottoman-Turkish connection, the background on his mother's side. I didn't know that. I knew Burgiba definitely had Burgiba one. did, yes. <laughs> Burgiba was originally from Crete, I think, somewhere in the Ottoman Empire. Exactly. And Eastern it's, Europe, it it's very interesting because both in Algeria and Tunisia, we have a lot of that in the elites. The Turks have left a, their mark in our country. Yes, al- although Algeria went through a different colonial experience yes. with a direct rule. So the French rule affected the status of these people in a different way than in Tunisia. Tunisia was a protectorate. So one of the roles of the colonial rule was to protect the Ottoman monarchy and to protect these elites. It was affected only when monarchy was abolished and when Bourguiba decided to confiscate a big part of their assets. Yes. The decline happened in Tunisia much later than in Algeria. Right. And Tunisia is also closer geographically to the mother (laughs) nation of Turkey. But even Algeria, through the horrible 130 years of colonization, a lot of the powerful Turkish families, those we call Turks, even though a lot of them come from... Even though a lot of them come from Yugoslavia and places like it, really Ottomans, a lot of those families were left intact and they're still quite wealthy, even after they went through 130 years of colonization and survived. So it's a very interesting connection you made there for me, that Qais Saeed has some of that in him. (laughs) Very interesting. Yeah. A friend of mine from Jordan once looked at his picture. He said, he doesn't look Arab. He he has blue (laughs) eyes. Right, and right. I was, huh, interesting. I didn't pay attention to that. But and I didn't, because I didn't see him in that way. And it also sends a signal. And even it comes to acceptance. And during the electoral campaign, I saw someone saying, well, you should vote for him since you prefer people with, with blue eyes and not people with brown eyes. Because colorism and racism is definitely a thing in uh, Tunisian it's politics. Post-colonialism, definitely. But blue eyes didn't wait for the French to come. I mean, we have... <laughs> Long routes and all sorts of Mediterranean and beyond the Mediterranean sources. So that blue eyes thing is an interesting stereotype also. For now, the president seems to have the support of the military, of which he's the leader under the constitution. And Nahda official and others as well have alleged foreign involvement in the so-called coup, accusing the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and France of meddling. What do you think of these rumors, that somehow these powers are behind the so-called coup? 
I think they are playing some game right now, but I don't think they are the ones who have been pushing or the ones who are manipulating Zayed. We are seeing some sort of unusual Twitter number of like bots on Twitter and social media content and manipulation of the discourse. We are also seeing a big division in the way regional news channel from the Gulf have uh, been covering the events, uh, polarization between Qatar and Turkey, or the Turkey is not in the Gulf. Qatar and Turkey being very pro Nahda, more specifically, and insisting on views of the word coup, but at the same time, the Egyptian, Saudi, and Emirati news backing or supporting Saeed, not using the word coup, calling it the correction of the political path or, or the revolutionary path, or it depends on who is talking. So Tunisia is not an island isolated from the world. There is definitely some level of interference from all these countries. It's not very clear right now to what extent they are involved. But like I said, these Gulf countries are divided on who they are supporting. That's Mohammed Hamami speaking with Khalil Bendib about the pandemic and the political and economic crisis in Tunisia. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Qatar, the Tunisian police have raided the offices of broadcaster Al Jazeera and ordered them shut down. In view of progress of and freedom of the press since uh, the revolution in 2011, what does this mean to you? The fact that they would censor and close down an entire channel like Al Jazeera? It is clearly a bad sign, and that's not the only bad sign that we're seeing from Zayed. We saw other signs or other worrying signs related to the freedom of press. Today, Vivian Yi from New York Times published an article where she talked about her experience in Tunisia during the last few days. It started with a detention for two hours by the police because of some problems of papers and, and ID and permission to work as a foreign journalist. And then they prevented her from conducting interviews in one of the most low-income, popular, crowded neighborhood in the the western suburb of Tunis. Then she got an invitation from the presidency to uh, meet Saeed. So she and her colleagues working for the New York Times thought that it would be an interview. 
but it was not an interview. I just wanted to lecture them about the U.S. Constitution and freedom, and he's inspired from um, Alexis de Tocqueville, which is in itself a problematic reference. And even more concerning, he quoted uh, Charles de Gaulle, a quote from 58, a period during which France was going through a controversy and a crisis, political crisis, that led to a kind of coup, although French people not necessarily call the Gaulle's move to suspend the constitution a coup, but it was a coup, and it seems that many in Tunisia, maybe Saïd is one of them, were inspired from the Gaulle's move in, in 58, and the New York Times article ends with a quote, tell them what freedom is or what freedom means. So it seems that even when it comes to freedom, the understanding is kind of questionable. So I, I don't know what Saïd's understanding of freedom is, and, but this, this is very concerning. We didn't see yet any intimidation on Tunisian journalists. Uh, we saw, however, state media, for example, not adopting or even engaging in uh, discussions on whether it's a coup or not. It's not clear if they are simply not convinced that the coup or they are convinced of the irrelevance of the discussion or simply intimidated or afraid to lose their jobs because I had recently decided to move the head of the national TV. So there are a lot of concerning signs, not least among them referencing the colonial power as... A- as if perhaps an example. Or, and or and not just the colonial power, uh, referring to the Gaulle specifically in 58 is an extremely problematic reference. And most yeah. Tunisians don't necessarily see what's behind it, but I think it's extremely worrisome and problematic. It was a constitutional coup that de Gaulle himself affected against his own government. A lot of people have made the obvious parallel, which is not so necessarily appropriate, but definitely have made the parallel between what happened in Egypt in 2013 and what's happening right now. Tell us what you think of that parallel and how wrong or, or perhaps not so wrong it might be. In, in, the, in the media and on social media, we saw many comparisons between Tunisia and, and Egypt that triggered some reaction of not necessarily pro-Saïd people, but Tunisians who were not comfortable with the comparison, saying that, oh no, Tunisia is not Egypt. But I personally think that comparisons are useful. We don't have to try military coups to know that they are bad. When we see similar conditions uh, that may lead us to kind of freedom of authoritarianism, we should learn from our neighbor's experience. And the irony is that these people who refuse the comparison between Tunisia and Egypt do compare uh, and even assimilate Nahda to the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. I think there are similarities, but also in the same way there are similarities between Nahda and other branches of the Muslim Brotherhood across the, uh, we may call or may not call the Muslim world. I personally see some similarities, the idea of a strong man who comes in a context of dissatisfaction and discontent from the existing elite and who presents himself as a savior somehow. So at this point, there are similarities, but the Tunisian army is not the Egyptian army. 
uh, the cultural organization and the history is different. The capacities is, are different. The control over the economy is extremely different. Tunisia, the military officers do not own as many companies are Egyptian ones. They don't have a control over key sectors of the economy. So having the army as an ally is in itself not enough to be able to rule. You need alliance with other political actors, not the army. I think in addition to this mythological comparison with Egypt, we should keep in mind that Nahda is strongly influenced by the Egyptian experience. They still have some kind of trauma of what happened with, with their allies and friends in Egypt. Uh, but at the same time, I think they are also inspired from the coup attempt in Turkey, the failed coup attempt in Turkey. In 2016. So, exactly, in 2016. So that, that may explain why they are still optimistic, not necessarily expecting an Egypt-like scenario with the killing, mass killing of, of hundreds of people. I don't think that's how Tunisian Islamists are imagining the worst case scenario. So I do think that these comparisons are useful and relevant. What happened 2013, for those who don't remember, in Egypt, was there was tremendous dissatisfaction with the ruling government, which was made up of a, a Muslim Brotherhood party led by Morsi. It was overthrown by the military to great acclaim for at least in the beginning, before things got really terrible for the Egyptian people, before repression became extremely bloody. And this is not what's happened in Tunisia. The same year, Nahda did not go down that path. They decided to share power with other parties, even though they had won most of the votes. And it's still not the case, at least for now, in Tunisia, where you don't have the same scenario. You don't have this military taking over as bluntly and as uh, forcefully as, as happened in Egypt. There is another similarity that I forgot, which is the behavior of the opposition to the Islamists, the entire Islamists. We are seeing similar scapegoating of the Islamists, meaning they are responsible of everything. I think in but, Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood were more responsible of what happened, of all the turmoil through which Egypt went through since the Muslim Brotherhood had access to power because they were the dominant, they had the majority in the parliament, everything. In Tunisia, it's not really the case. In Tunisia, Nahda ruled in coalition with other political parties since the very beginning, since 2011. Most of these political parties disappeared or, or merged or uh, split into different parties. And added to that, Nahda did not have a control over the key nodes of the system, meaning they didn't have a control over the allocation of resources by the banks, or they are not the ones who design the policies, they are not the ones who signed the IMF agreements, the many IMF agreements that led to the deterioration of the economic conditions of Tunisians. So I think the scapegoating we're seeing in Tunisia is similar, but even more important than what we saw in Egypt. In Egypt, the left was fine with supporting the military as long as they helped them to get rid of the Islamists. In Tunisia, we are seeing a similar narrative. That right now, we are willing to accept anything. And if things get bad, we will go back to the streets and prevent an authoritarian turn. 
Uh, but that's not how things work. It's very difficult for protesters to prevent authoritarian turns, simply because the police can be more simply more repressive and prevent uh, protesters from going through the streets. And so repeating this scenario or the balance and checks become very weak when there is an extreme concentration of power and when the anti-Islamists are fine with that. One thing we haven't mentioned yet was the dynamic between the president and his prime minister and the, and the government and the prime minister. What were some of the main issues of contention and why did the president finally end up firing the minister? Tell us a little bit more about that. The prime minister was appointed in 2020. According to the Egyptian constitution, he is in charge of internal executive affairs while the president is in charge of defense and foreign policy. The main critiques against Mishishi have to do with the way he mishandled the COVID crisis in terms of organization, the rapidity of the response. He failed to face the new waves. The mortality rates increased significantly in comparison with the previous government. So um, these are, I think, the main critiques. In and he's of- also to keep in mind that he doesn't have a political party to support him. He is an independent bureaucrat who worked with Saeed as an advisor, then as a minister of interior close to Saeed. But then when he became prime minister, he switched alliances and he started working with another more than Saeed. That, that's one of the reasons why he decided to get rid of him because he doesn't see him as reliable or effective in the way he rules. And, uh, okay. That's another factor. What is the National Labor Federation, UGTT's role in all this? Some see it as gravitating towards a role of mediator between the different centers of power, between the president on the one hand and uh, Nahda, and between the president and the rest of government, which are the cabinet and the parliament. Tell us more about their role and, and what they're doing right now. I think if UGDT will play a role of mediator, it would be between the president and mostly another party and the head of the parliament, Rajat Ghanoushi. It's already good to see that UGDT is willing to mediate because during the last years, They've been under constant critique and attack from the Islamists, portraying them as part of the system, as the cause of the economic problems. It's kind of the common discourse that we find among right-wing parties who oppose unions and tend to put all the blame on, on them. But in Tunisia, the union is the oldest political organization in the country, created in 1948, before even Tunisia's independence, 10 years before Tunisia's independence. It is dominated by what we call Ashurin, which is a reference to some kind of workerist who believe in separation of politics from uh, unionism, kind of professional unionists. But we also find other leftist groups and parties represented within UGT uh, with more uh, either Marxist tendencies or you know, with Marxist tendencies or with some kind of pan Arabist, Ba'athist, or Nazis tendencies. And the position of UGT is, to some extent, 
shaped by the, these internal dynamics. So far, a part of the parties with Marxist tendencies, more specifically, the old Bach, today's Workers' Party, opposed Kaisai's moves and called it a coup. That's number one. Number two, the pan-Arabist, the Halak al-Shaab, who are also present in the parliament, very inspired from uh, Abd Nasser's conflict with the Muslim Brotherhood. They supported Said's uh, move, they refused to call it a coup, and in fact called it the correction of the revolutionary path, which is a word that was also, and I think still used, used in Egypt. So, and, and then the others, workerists, uh, they are not necessarily influenced by their party position. And they also enjoy, I would say, being respected and they like being the, the savior, the mediator who intervenes in critical situations. They did that in 2013 when the activities of the National Constitutional Assembly, which was back then the only elected institution in the country, uh, suspended its activities after the assassination of one of its members, they intervened with the support of other organizations, but that was the main organization that played the role of mediator between Nahda and other political parties. And they made, made sure that they sit around the same table and discuss uh, the appointment of a new government and a return of activities of the National Council Assembly. And they got the Nobel Peace Prize for that in 2014. So as part of the quartet, the famous quartet. Exactly. The famous quartet composed by UGTT, Utikao, which is the, the business owner syndicate that I mentioned earlier, Tunisian League of Human Rights, and the Lawyers Organization, the Tunisian Bar Association. But the most important one is UGT, is the one that is leading the negotiations. So uh, we'll probably see something like that within the next uh, few days, hopefully. They already published uh, on their Facebook page some pictures of meetings of consultation uh, with their experts. They also had some meetings with foreign diplomats, more specifically the French, Italian, and, and Spanish. So UGT in Tunisia is a strong political actor with hundreds of thousands of members in a country of 4 million workers. So they have control over the public sector. So it's difficult to rule. Without them, they have the ability to organize massive strikes in the public sector. They can simply prevent a government from ruling and forcing it to resign. They did that in 2013. And usually when they engage into, when they, when they start nationwide general strike, it has a high political cost and, and, and effect. So that's the leverage that it has oversight is preventing him from ruling. But it's not clear to what extent they are ready to cooperate with him or support him. It's clear that they are not supportive of Nahda. They are more supportive of the survival of Tunisian democracy and the preservation of uh, peace in the country. We'll see what will happen. Historically, they've always had this uh, very special role and Tunisian politics. The government recently announced, this is before the so-called coup, the government of Mshishi announced cuts to food and fuel subsidies 
as it sought its fourth loan from the International Monetary Fund in the decade, further fueling anger in impoverished regions. Since this change brought about by Eisite, since his intervention 10 days ago, how have the European Western partners reacted, generally speaking? What is their attitude towards this change? There is a difference between what is done publicly and what's done privately. I'm not going to talk about the rumors circulating about what's happening in private because the rumors are never reliable or rarely reliable. So when it comes to public statements, Europeans have been calling for a return of democratic institutions, no timeline or, or anything. The French government called for acceleration of the appointment of the new prime minister. In the U.S., however, the dynamic was more visible and, and, and complex, not complicated. Initially, we saw the spokesperson of the White House reducing the discussion to legal definition and determination of whether it's a coup or not. And here it's clear that they are more concerned about their ability to give military aid and security aid to the Tunisian police and and army. Uh, And that's why I think they insisted on the legal determination of whether it's a coup or not. On the side of the Congress, the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, they published a statement. We saw several Congress people tweeting or publishing statements also. Some of them, like Ilhan Omar, even calling for a suspension of arms supply. So that's, I think, the most radical position we saw on the side of, of U.S. officials. More recently, the Secretary of State, Lincoln, started also expressing a clearer position than the White House, more political ones calling for a return of the parliament. The National Security Advisor of the White House also yesterday had a, a phone call with the Tunisian presidency, also insisting on the uh, necessity to return to, to go back to normal. So I would say uh, during the last days, the pressure from the U.S. has been increasing. And even uh, on the media, the, the coverage also increased. But I don't think the U.S. intervention or interference is helpful. We're already seeing reaction and skepticism from social media users and others. And it's totally understandable. The uh, history of U.S. intervention in this kind of circumstances is pretty dark. So if there is maybe a mediation that can be helpful, and we're already seeing some movement, would be an Algerian one. Recent communication between Erdogan and Taboon. Uh, Erdogan, uh, sorry, uh, the Turkish uh, president, uh, who is allied and, and even, I would say, friend of Razganoushi, calling Taboon. President of Algeria, Taboon, yes. Exactly, who is in very good terms with Saeed, but also the Algerian Minister of Foreign Affairs came to Tunis and had some discussion with his counterpart. And what we know about him, that he is all in good terms with Rajdra Nushi. Uh, Rajdra Nushi in the 90s, 
had developed good and even personal ties with a part of uh, Algeria's uh, ruling elite. He doesn't have any problem with the military or anything. He was back then uh, very good terms with Bouteflika, the former Algerian president. So both Saeed and Ghanoushi have allies in Algeria. And Algeria is a very strategic partner in Tunisia. And on several occasions, they've been giving some aid and whatever it's medical or financial aid. And even for the security of Algeria, stabilization of Tunisia is extremely important. So they've been collaborating at, at the border, trying to prevent incursions from Libyan terrorists and even, people even coming from through. Tunisia, even yeah. from Tunisia, at the level of the mountains uh, on the border with Algeria. But I think the concerns are also being raised by several actors, including in Tunisia, including the PAC, the former Communist Party. They mentioned the problem of security that may raise from an exclusion of Nahda, meaning an exclusion of the Islamists may theoretically lead to their radicalization. So I guess that's something that regional actors have in mind. And even when it comes to acceptance, a mediation of Algeria would be way more accepted than a Western interference. You're right. What happened in Algeria in the 90s, radicalization of the Islamist movement was something that nobody wants to repeat and devolved into a terrible civil war. So the, exactly. Algerian, the Algerian experience is hopefully very helpful. And if we even go back to the way it started, it can be used as a good example to avoid the exclusion of Islamist political actors from the, from the political game. So I'm sure everyone has in mind the Algerian experience. And I'll so, just do the Egyptian one. <laughs> yes. So finally, 10 years after this, incredible revolution in Tunisia. Where do you see the country going now at this very critical juncture? Do you have any sense? Are you optimistic? What, uh, in this confusion that we're living in right now, what is your general sense of where th- things might be headed? I know it's a tough question. Yes, that's a, that's a tough question. Because <laughs> uh, things can, can get worse in all aspects, political, human rights, economic, or things can improve on all sides and all fronts. It will depend on the actions of the conflicting political actors. I personally don't think that the economic situation is going to get better in the short run, independently from the political scenario. So that's why I think focusing on the preservation of the amount of freedom of organization that we have that allows workers to organize, that allows uh, people who we want alternatives to happen. We need some level of freedom that doesn't necessarily exist in, in other countries, other regions. I, I tweeted this morning that the last decade, since the, the authoritarian turn of Bourguiba in the 60s, the only decade during which the, what I said, what I call the non-bourgeois left, had enough freedom to organize and engage in different forms of mobilization, is the last decade. Although there is a high discontent from the result of the policies, that was the only decade during which different type of leftist organization had some freedom to push for alternatives, to raise questions, 
to critique governmental policies, to resist agreements imposed by the EU. So let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think right now what we should focus on is to preserve what we have and try to make things better. Mohammad Hammami is a Tunisian researcher based in Tunis. He spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Mm